big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank Inca, who upgraded their pledge on Patreon, as well as welcome our newest patrons, Alex, Shannon, Nyree, Emily, Kat, and my high school English teacher, who I still call Mr. Austin, even though I've been out of high school for almost a decade. So if you want to be awesome like Mr. Austin and get access to our notes, outtakes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now enjoy part three of our discussion of the 2008 miniseries of Sense and Sensibility with our guests, Mel and Mike. So cut to the next day. Cut to them grilling Sir John about what kind of man Willoughby is. And poor John just doesn't know what they're talking about. This was honestly such like a, forgive me, such like a stereotypical boy thing where you're like, yeah, he's he's a chill hang. And she's like, what's his soul like? And he's like, he's a great dog. (laughs) (laughs) I can confirm I have done this. I'm absolutely, people have asked me about like someone I know and I'm like, oh, he, he's, he's cool. He's, I, and I'm like, but what, what's his soul like? Would you, would you trust him? And you're like, oh. He's got cool hair. He's got a cool haircut. <laughs> I, know, I know that. But I, I relate to judging someone by their dog. Although I don't like, I know that a female dog is called a bitch, but every time that line is said, and it's been in the first adaptation we watched, it was in the book. He's got this, sweetest little bitch of a pointer. I'm like, what? Everyone gets psyched to use the word bitch in a context that's not problematic, I suppose. For sure, for sure, for sure. So Mrs. Dashwood then asks if he's married and John is like, oh, I see. You're gonna set your cap at him now and never think of poor Brandon again. And I remembered that in the book, Marianne was like, I'm not setting my cap at anyone. I'm like, I'm an independent woman and like fights back against it. And in this, she just kind of smiles and is like, (laughs) I guess. Um, And this was this was one moment where I like was thinking about how they're overall more patient with Sir John and Mrs. Jennings. Like they just kind of are like, sure, whatever, um, than they are in the book. Then cut to Margaret looking out the window with her little fish, which Also props to her for keeping this goldfish alive for so long. Um, And she sees Willoughby's coming and she's like, here comes Willoughby. And Willoughby comes in and he says, how's the invalid? Oh, is that a direct line? That's a direct pull from the 1995. I breezed past another few direct things from the 1995. Like, for example, the walk in which um, Marion and Margaret go and meet Willoughby is like, that's not her avoiding Brandon in the books. That's just a walk. Was it her avoiding Brandon in the 95? Yes. Oh. There, there's a lot of them. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I do think that the 95 is so iconic that some of the imagery and some of the plot moving forward is just impossible to ignore. 
Yeah. And, you know, justice for Margaret. Justice for Margaret. Justice for Meg. Justice for Meg. <laughs> Meg. Willoughby has brought Marianne wild strawberries. And Marianne's like, I love wild strawberries. And he's like, I thought you might. <laughs> and Mrs. Dashwood is like, Meg, let's get out of here. And like brings Margaret away, which is weird because you would think she's trying to give them some space. But then she and Eleanor still sit there. And they just have kicked Margaret out. I think they're chaperoning, whereas Margaret was like looking to be involved. Oh, another instance in which we know that he's bad because we don't let Margaret be involved in his relationship. Yep. Then Willoughby and Marianne bond over poetry. And then we hear that Colonel Brandon is coming and Eleanor kind of like, she doesn't roll her eyes, but she looks a little bit like, oh dear, here we go. Because Marianne is like sitting on the couch unable to move and Willoughby's there and it's it's all very awkward. And then Colonel Brennan comes in and Willoughby hides behind Mrs. Dashwood. <laughs> he like makes himself invisible. He tries. He tries. <laughs> However, they're like, oh, uh, Colonel Brandon, do you know Sir Mr. Willoughby? And she like turns around and lets him be visible. And then it's like the drama. The waves that were crashing. The music got really intense. Oh my God. And they have a moment and everyone sees Willoughby and Brandon having a moment. And then Brandon looks at Willoughby and then he looks at Marianne and you see it just like dawning on his face what's happening and the resignation there of like, oh, fuck. And he looked at me and, and I, I looked, looked at him. him. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there's also it's um it's very Wickham and Darcy mm -hmm. at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, too. Mm -hmm. Very much. Where everyone's just like, ooh, ooh, what is this? What is this? What is this? But apparently in this, everyone just ignores it. <laughs> well, after Brandon is like, OK, well, I came to see if Marianne was OK and she is. So I'm leaving. He leaves. And then Mrs. Dashwood goes remarkable or like, what does she say? Um, I think remarkable. And then Willoughby goes. Yes, well, he is a remarkable man. And it's like, dun, dun, dun. And no one asks. No one asks. But it's like very much, and it's very over the top. And it's weird that no one says anything because they're both staring at each other so intensely. And then Brandon goes out back to his horse mm -hmm. and the camera just like zooms in on his face with this intense music swelling and the wind whipping his hair in the breeze. And then it's like waves crashing on rocks. Cut to. Little mommy getting ready. This is the scene where Marianne is complaining that she has nothing to wear for Willoughby. And everyone's like, he's obsessed with you. He doesn't give a shit what you wear. And so she compromises wearing an old faded dress with Eleanor's yellow gloves. So Marianne has, has her hair down. Mm -hmm. And as a self-identifying uh, curly girl, um, I just wanted to say that I don't know what the curly girl method was back in the Regency era, but uh, it, whatever it was, Marianne was doing it. So I don't know if she plopped. I don't know if she squished to condition. I don't know if she scrunched out the crunch, but girl had the curls going on and I just wanted to say respect. That's it. Nice. <laughs> I, I, actually, that would be another thing that we could ask a costumer mm. who knows things about the time period. Like, actually, would her hair have been that good? Well, I mean, I think the most hair accurate of the Jane Austen adaptations we've seen so far is the 1995 Pride and Prejudice which is those like ringlets that come down and I they, they show them making them I think in the the movie I think it's like ribbon based. Do we know how they got the bagel bangs? <laughs> bagel bangs. Bagel bangs on Fanny because I would love to know that secret. Bagel That's bangs. definitely pinned. They just used some pig fat and they like <laughs> swirled <laughs> it onto her head. Okay, moving on. Moving delicious, on. Delicious. Yes. 
And so we're going to a dance. Now, I don't remember, is this like a ball or is this just a dance, a party at the house? This is an added scene. It's not in the book. I didn't think so, but I needed to clarify because I was like, I thought they didn't start going to balls until London. No, um, they don't have enough people for a ball in the country. I don't think. But either way, they could have gone to balls together and danced together. But if so, it was like in the montage of Willoughby and Marianne spending a lot of time together and didn't like warrant a mention in the book. Mm -hmm. So here it's a it's a full blown party and there's dancing and Marianne and Willoughby are very obviously just like dancing together and Brandon's watching them and then he goes up to Willoughby and he's like a word in private and the two of them go into the hallway and Brandon asks Willoughby what his intentions with Marianne are and Willoughby gets pissed and he's like oh is she under your protection which is a low blow yes it is a low blow and also just like he should know better Like, Colonel Brendan's an important enough man that you don't really want to piss him off. Yeah, but Willoughby's a dick. (laughs) He is a dick. This is where it becomes, like, unquestionable that, like, you do not root for Willoughby here. Right. Well, the only thing is knowing what I know. So Willoughby goes in and he's like, he says, what are your intentions with her? And Brandon's like, whatever they are, they're honorable. And Willoughby's like, I can't help it if Marianne likes me more. We are more compatible. We're closer in age. We're closer in temperament. And Yes, my intentions are honorable, and now I'm going to walk away. And, like, yes, he's a douchebag, and I don't root for him, but knowing what I know and knowing that his intentions kind of actually are honorable, weirdly enough, it keeps that complexity in their characters. So I don't want to go too far into this, but I do think that the way this adaptation is positioned, as opposed to the 95, is much more Willoughby-centric. And I think that's an interesting way to frame the story, but it does create more complexity of character on Willoughby and having Brandon know he's a villain early on and giving us those tendrils does give Willoughby a little bit more of a of an important place in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this does seem, it, it, it does seem more like Brandon Willoughby focused than it is Edward focused. Yeah, not so much Dan Stevens. Yeah, but we don't know yet. I mean, Dan Stevens might feature more heavily in part two. He might. We're talking about, like, really this first part. Yeah, totally. Because, like, think of, like, the first half of the 95 version. It was, like, so much Hugh Grant just flopping around and being nice to Margaret. We got, like, an Edward montage in this instead. Exactly. Yeah. So later that night, Marianne and Eleanor are in their room and Eleanor is telling Marianne that she's being too open with her feelings. And Marianne is like, well, you should be more open with yours. And Eleanor is like, it's not going to do me any good to lie sobbing and crying his name. And she doesn't want to hope for something that may never happen. Is this where she says, would you rather me sit silent? Here's the quote. I loved this line. I don't know if this is where it happens. So if it is. Uh, just kill me, I guess. Oh, um, yeah. it is. She says, would you rather me sit silently and talk of weather and roads? It's something like that. I wrote yes. it down like after the fact because I couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh, I just like the phrasing of that. Of like, yeah, I guess that's like a good way to put like small talk. It's like, yeah, just talk about the weather, talk about roads instead of talking about real things. Yes. Then when Eleanor's like, I'm not going to hope for that, Marianne's like, let me hope for you. And it's kind of nice because mm. it's we talked about their friendship being more cute in this than it is in the 95 and and I like that a lot. There's a lot more understanding between the two of them in this one. Then the next day we cut to Eleanor 
looking longingly at the sea and she's looking at her little book that she got from Edward and looking sad about it when we hear Marianne screaming her name. And I'm surprised she doesn't look more concerned than she does. Nope, but, but she gets concerned soon enough when there's a horse yes. on the property. And I'm thrilled that this made it into this adaptation because <laughs> this part is ridiculous. Not only because the horse is canonically named Queen Mab, mm-hmm. which is ludicrous. I mean, we, we've we discussed this before, but like that is like naming a horse Elphaba if you're a theater nerd. Not even actually. It's like naming your horse Nessa because you're like, the cool kind of theater nerd who doesn't use the most obvious characters. Right. For those of you who might not be familiar with Shakespeare, she says, staring me directly in the eyes. (laughs) Queen Mab is a reference to... Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Who, like, you're not naming your horse Romeo or Juliet. No, Queen Mab is a spirit in a speech from Mercutio, uh, a soliloquy, uh, talking about sleep. Um, so it's like a very niche Shakespeare reference from the least niche Shakespeare play. Wow. Yeah. So we meet Queen Mab and Eleanor is like, that's very generous of you, but Marianne cannot accept. And Marianne's like, what do you mean? And Eleanor is like, for reasons both of practicality and propriety. I really do like this Eleanor because she has the the face down of just complete. What's the word when you're surprised, but you're not. Not aghast. Fuck, there's a word. I can't think of it. She's got a great poker face, but one that simultaneously shows that underneath the poker face, she is shocked. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the opposite. Like, she's got the the look of, like, she's been hit with something she simply cannot believe, but she's also so done. So she's, Are like... looking for disbelief? Um... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think so. I'm going to keep thinking about this word. And I think when I'm not on the spot, then I'll be able to get it. But it's something. You're just going to inject it later. Yeah. No, it's okay. The listeners can know that I don't don't speak English. Um, But she just looks completely. Yeah, maybe disbelief. But she's she's just like, oh, my God. Like when her mom brought in the floor plans of those homes that they simply cannot afford. And now when Marianne is like, look at this beautiful horse, she's like, are you actually kidding me? But but trying exasperation. Yes. She's exasperated. She's exasperated. She's like, what, Marianne? But she does have a good poker face where she's like, Willoughby, this is very nice of you. But and then she's like looking at Marianne, like trying to keep smiling. But she's like, what are you doing? We can't afford this horse. And they go inside and Marianne is like, this is ridiculous. And Mrs. Dashwood's like, yeah, you're being a little harsh, Eleanor. Can't we cut back somewhere else? And Eleanor is about to snap. She's like, no, we can't cut back on somewhere else. We're already cutting back on everything. We can barely afford to eat. Like, what are you talking about? We're going to get a horse. And then Willoughby comes in and he's like, no, you're right. I put you in an awkward situation. Marianne, you can have the horse when you can come claim it. I will keep it until then. And then Mrs. Dashwood dramatically covers her mouth with her hand. I love this moment, too. She's like, oh, I don't know. It was just a good moment for me. Because he basically says, you can have this horse when you leave Barton, which implies you can have this horse when I marry you. Mm. This is the clearest oh. implication mm-hmm. of anything is the him basically being like, don't worry. Don't have to accept the horse right now. You can have it later. And what is later? It reminds me of those like Honda commercials around like the holidays when like <laughs> the husband buys like a new car, right? And the wife gets like all weepy. But like when you actually think about it, it's like, wait, you made this huge financial investment without her input? Like that seems like a really crappy decision. Like Jim like, and Pam on The Office. Right. Yes. Phenomenal couple. Love them so much. Would never say that they're a bad match. 
However, in hindsight, Jim buying a house without telling Pam is pretty fucked up. But she was mad at him. She was mad at him when he did that. No, not in the moment. She was like, I love this. You bought me a house. And then later she's like, in hindsight, that kind of sucks. Yeah, I guess it's been a minute since I've watched it. So I just like, I can't imagine not being angry at someone for buying a house without telling me. No, everyone tells Jim that she's going to be angry. And then he shows her the house and she's like, I love it. You bought me a house. And it's like, but also he took on a mortgage right. without telling you. Right, 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 right. Yes. And she was, yeah, you're right. She was like surprised that she liked it. I mean, yeah, it's it's also a really hideous house. But anyway, this is what Willoughby's doing. But here it's like, it's more like, it's like a guy buying you something and saying like, I'm going to keep it at my place for you. And, you know, when you come to be with me here, then you can have it all the time. It's like when Mel got me a toothbrush. I was thinking it was more like when um, we were talking about Mike moving in and I was like, why don't you just leave your PS4 here? Oh, yeah. If I were not intending to offer him to move in with me, I would. it would suck for me to be like, hey, just have your PS4 here. Right. It's how she drew me in. Yeah. She knew what she was doing. It was very <laughs> Once strategic. the PS4 was here, he basically lived here anyway. That's, that's really how it is. That's how it goes. It's a nice toothbrush, so... <laughs> So back to this, though, we cut to Brandon and John shooting birds and John is talking about how Willoughby's a pretty good shot. And Brandon's like, yeah, well, Willoughby's good at everything. And John is like, oh, like, is this because of Marianne? It's okay, dude. Hold out. They're young. They're going to get sick of each other really fast. And then you'll still be here. And it's actually like not bad advice on on John's part, but it's cute. Their their friendship is cute because John is just like the ultimate hype man because he doesn't process anything that's happening. So he's like always like everything's good. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my note here says that Colonel Brandon looks like Liam Neeson. Now that Mm -hmm. that is a compliment. That is a compliment and accurate. Um, Not here's Morgan. Um, Really, we're still reeling from that one personally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Becca's done with you. We're at the point where um, John's like, you could always go for Eleanor. And then Brandon's like, huh. Yes, which brings me to a very important point that this adaptation is leaning in to the you could always go for Eleanor. And I am thrilled. I could not be happier to see him saying you could always go for Eleanor, Brandon looking pensive and then cut to Eleanor looking beautiful on the seaside picking shells because... Yes, we do need to lean into this. It's something that needs to be explored. And I can't wait to see how far they'll take it. I will neither confirm nor deny. Then. (laughs) Oh, no. Then we get to everyone's least favorite moment. Which is Willoughby and Marianne sitting in the kitchen. And and Margaret, let's not forget, she is very much present for this moment. (laughs) Which is just disturbing for so many reasons. It's so creepy. He's like. Sitting there and Marianne's like, "Mm, no. And he's like, please let me. And it's very sexual. And she's like, Willoughby, you don't have scissors, which is very much like, Willoughby, you don't have a condom. And he's like, I brought one especially for this purpose. And she's like, what? (laughs) And he takes out the scissors and then snips off a lock of her hair. But doesn't just do so. He does so like he is like gently like approaching the clitoris. He's like, like, and she acts like that too. She's like, ah. She gets this look on her face where she's like, (gasps) Margaret also looks like she saw a ghost in this moment. Yeah, (laughs) And and frankly, Margaret's just disturbed. And then Willoughby does this creepy thing where he looks over at Margaret and he just goes, shh. Yep. Yep. 
Like you, you saw nothing. It's just all very, very, very bad. It really, and I think it's very deliberately supposed to read that way. I think it's supposed to read like they're having sex in front of Margaret, mm-hmm. which is weird. Yeah, super weird. But at the same time, it lays this out more explicitly that he is bad news. Because if they weren't doing anything wrong, he wouldn't have to say, shh. Yes. So then we go to like a storm at night and Margaret crawls into bed with Eleanor, which is very sweet. Mm-hmm. And she's like, do you like it here? And Eleanor is like, it's fine. Yeah, why not? And um, Margaret's like, I miss Norland. And Eleanor's like, we all miss Norland. But just think, tomorrow we're going to a picnic at Brandon's estate and he has peaches and strawberries growing in his greenhouses. Yet again, another thing they pulled right from the 95. Instead of going to Brandon's friend, we're going to Delaford. Which, to be fair, it never made sense for them to be going to Brandon's friend's house. It was needlessly complicated, Jane Austen. But anyway, we digress. We digress. <laughs> so the next day we are prepping for said picnic at Delaford when a horse approaches and they're like, where's Brandon? And he's there and he gets a note and he's like, I've got to go right now. And it's much less dramatic than it was in the 95 because no one can ever do Impossible. Imperative. Imperative. <laughs> Quite the same way. But he does have to go. Imperative. <laughs> Turn to page 394. Yeah, it's weird that he snuck that into that scene, but I thought it worked. Yeah. So- <laughs> I got Molly. <laughs> that was good. Good job. Thank you. But. This next part is like, oh, this Willoughby is just so terrible because immediately he's like, Brandon sucks. He doesn't like a good time. Now, I do think that this movie, I said this already, but in the book, it's left up to interpretation to the audience who like whether or not Brandon and Willoughby already know each other and whether or not Brandon knows that Willoughby fucked his ward. It makes sense that Willoughby would be such a like talking shit about Brandon so much. A douche kebab. A douche kebab is the word I was looking for. Thank you. I was like struggling to find it, but that was it. It makes sense that he would be such a douche kebab towards Brandon behind his back if he and Brandon had a negative history. It didn't really make sense that he just didn't like, he like the whole thing about like, he wished rain or he told me it was going to rain when I wanted sunshine and he didn't like my horse or like what, like all of those reasons were silly. I think it's pretty explicit that they're, they're rivals for Marianne's affection. Yeah. And Willoughby's not stupid to that. Um, But I think it's not clear that he just dislikes him. I think here there's a note of him trying to discredit Brandon Mm -hmm. because Brandon has some dirt on him. Right. Yes. And I think that um, I'm just saying that I think that that the book, like this could be taking that directly from the book, which I approve of. So good job to Andrew Davies. Speaking of taking things directly from the book. Yes. Speaking of taking things directly from the book, Willoughby's like, well, we can still have a good time. Let's get in our carriages and go around town. And they're like, oh, what a good idea. Should we all go in a line? And Willoughby turns and goes, catch us if you can, Sir John. And then he and Marianne just like ricochet off. So the parallel before when Marianne took Margaret out for the walk and said, it's just going to be a two, we just need to walk for two hours. Uh, This was my parallel because when um, uh, Willoughby takes Marianne out on the horse, Mrs. Jennings says, we won't see them for an hour or two. And I thought this was interesting that you're seeing Marianne uh, willingly avoiding Brandon for like the two hour mark and then willingly like escaping with um, with Willoughby for the two hour mark. So I just thought that was like an interesting parallel between the two men. Mm. Ooh. 
speaking of things that weren't in the book, but that were implied. Was it in, was it in the book? It wasn't in the book. We we know they went to LM together. And if you remember, in that time period, I forced the question of what happened at Alan M. Mm-hmm. Here we actually get to see what happened there. And you can see why in the Regency era it is such a big deal that he took her there alone. Yeah, and I felt that here. Because so they go to Alanum and they're walking around. And while nothing happens, something does happen. They kiss. They kiss. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Is that is that something happening in this time period? Oh. Yes. But so well, before we get there though, they're walking around the house and they're like, "Oh, it's like Sleeping Beauty's house, waiting to be awakened." And Marianne finds this scarf and she like wraps it around herself. Mm-hmm. Did you notice how much it looked like a veil? Yes, oh. I noticed that too. That's what I thought it was at first. And then when she put it around her shoulders, I was like, oh, okay. They, they want you for a second to think it's a bridal veil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then they go upstairs the and hands on the banister. Their hands are like almost touching, but not quite. Ugh. And they go up and they kiss. And then they break apart. And Willoughby says, Marianne, I think I should take you home now. Mm. Mm. So it's like, okay, maybe his intentions were honorable. Once again, I mean, okay, he really crossed a line taking her to LM, and you certainly cross a line with a woman in the Regency era if you kiss her without getting engaged to her. That would ruin Marianne's honor. It already almost does. Yeah, but you can see him so tempted to take it too far. Yeah. Like, not, he's already over the line, but he could really take it even farther. He could really ruin her. And he decides not to. And again, this points to this adaptation caring about giving us the the like different colors and complexities to Willoughby's character because he's a villain. And it sh- goes to show he's a villain because he kisses her. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can see his, the care he has for her in this moment. Yeah. And the trust in her eyes, too, where she was like totally there with him. The withheld passion, the, the knowledge that like, oh, he loves her. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster, and together they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films, or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. 
To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. And then we cut to dinner and Mike made the observation. Oh, that yeah. Like this is like another like Jane Austen trope. Like as much as like the the like quick cleaning when like a bachelor is coming, like there's also just so much drama when there's food in front of people. <laughs> soup specifically. It's always yeah. soup. It's, it's always, always soup. soup. It's always soup. Or in like Pride and Prejudice, it was like the potatoes, right? Like there's this like very food centric uh, uh, motif when it comes to like like sussing out the drama while eating food. Mm-hmm. And it it seems to only happen in like the film adaptations. It's yeah, because it's so etiquette laden mm-hmm. and it's so polite and silent. And then when people do start talking, it gets very snippy very quickly. Mm. And then like someone says something like awkward, and they all sip, the sip soup their at soup. The same time. <laughs> and then like uh, I don't remember. It might have been John who was just like shoveling the soup into his mouth. He was like, I this is too much for me. My favorite moment of that entire interaction. So fans, fans, listeners, if you will, um, <laughs> we um, cut to a dining scene where they're all there. Oh, we did skip that. Uh, everyone's worried about Marianne and Willoughby. They think they're dead. Yeah, they think they're dead. And then they come back. It's very Gilmore Girls a la Rory and Dean away for a night. And uh, when they fall know. asleep at Miss Patty's, we and fell asleep. Like, they're dead. Yeah, there was a lot of panic involved. Everyone was calling the neighbors. I uh, mean, yeah, anyway. Yes, exactly like that. And then they go to dinner and I'm, and Mrs. Jennings is like, I know you went to Allenham. And Willoughby's like, so what? And Mrs. Jennings is like, yeah, Marianne must like her new house. Wink. 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 And you realize in this moment that like they were gone for a long time. They could have been having sex. Mm-hmm. Which they weren't, but like it is left up to interpretation in the book. So like here we see that they didn't, but they could have. I mean, the difference here is that like when you're alone with a man in this time period, it's really dangerous to your reputation. And I think the point is that like no one knows what happened in that time period. Yeah. In those two hours. And the point is that you don't know. There's no chaperone. And the implication or the possibility itself is enough to cause damage to a reputation. Yeah. So after this uh, dinner scene, we get Eleanor and Marianne later on fighting about it. And Marianne is like, I don't want you to disapprove of me. I don't care what they all think, but I don't want you to disapprove of me. And Eleanor is like, I just disapprove of your conduct. And Marianne eventually says that, yeah, it might have been misjudged, but I do love him. Side note, I wanted to say Eleanor has her like paintings and sketches up on her wall and they are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. They really lean into how good she is at art here. It's implied in the book and it's talked about a bit, especially like later on when they meet Mrs. Farrow's. But it's here. It's very present in this story. Then we get Willoughby and Marianne walking down the beach and Willoughby's reciting poetry and then they're on a blanket and he's reciting poetry to her and Mrs. Dashwood and Eleanor are watching them on the blanket and Mrs. Dashwood's like I wonder why they didn't tell us that they're engaged and then Margaret like pops up loose lips Margaret coming through (laughs) and she's like I know they're engaged because he gave her her because she gave him a lock of her hair and Mrs. Dashwood is like please go tell Marianne to go inside. And Margaret leaves and she's like, Marianne wouldn't have done that if they're not engaged. That's really intimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw it. It was very intimate. Yeah. And then Willoughby comes over and he's like, 
tomorrow can I have a word with, uh, can I come see you for a private conversation first with Marianne and then with yourself? And Mrs. Dashwood's like, hmm, okay. And then she and Eleanor give each other a little look like, ooh. Things are beginning to grow in the lasagna. In the lasagna. It's a pretty rotten lasagna at this point. Yeah. This lasagna is uh, moldy. <laughs> this is not a metaphor Mel has heard before. It's uh, okay. I was just going to say, does Mel know about this? I'm just laughing along. <laughs> my mother, this is a, this is my mother's way of saying like, there's something happening between these two people. She'll go, things are beginning to grow in the lasagna. And therefore that has come up a couple times on this show. I love that. So the next day we have Mrs. Dashwood, Margaret and Eleanor like walking through the downs being like, is it, is it almost the time that he said he would be done talking to her yet? And Margaret's like, why do people always ask me to go for walks with them? And they're like walking back and then they're like, oh, there's Willoughby's horse. So he must be there. And they get into the cottage and Marianne runs past them sobbing up the stairs And they're like, what's going on? And Mrs. Dashwood is like, oh, my God, has she refused you? And Willoughby is like, no, I got to go. I'm leaving. Yeah. He's like, "Uh, bye. And they're like, what? And he's like, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. And Margaret chases him outside. And she's like, Willoughby, when are you coming back? Marianne will want to know. And he just ignores her and rides away. And they go back inside. And... Mrs. Dashwood is like trying to figure out she and Eleanor are talking and Miss, and she's like, maybe his aunt disapproves of Marianne and is sens- sending him away. But Eleanor's like, why wouldn't he just tell us that? And Mrs. Dashwood is like, if I were mistress of Norland, my girls wouldn't be treated this way. Mm-hmm. If I were still mistress of Norland, my girls would never be treated this way is so sad. It's so sad. And it's it's very implied through the entire book, but it's said out loud here. And it's, oh. Devastating. They've lost everything and nobody thinks of them as like the high class anymore. Well, it's the economics of dating in Jane Austen. Hello, Graham, the sound effects. Because suddenly they have no, nothing to offer a marriage other than being beautiful and wonderful. So she feels in this, trapped in this way because these men can kind of mistreat her girls and she can't do anything about it. Right. Yeah, it's so sad. And then she kind of runs away and uh, Marianne is like, guys, don't worry. I was just overcome for a second. He'll be back soon. Yeah, she's like, I'm sure he'll find time to come visit us again. And then we cut to Marianne with her scarf (gasps) looking out over this little stream. Cue the 10 minute all too well. And you keep my old scarf from that. I can't, I can't sing it, right? Week. Copyright? I don't know. Because you remember yeah. yeah. I really wanted Taylor Swift to just come through the background in this moment. Oh, mm. Very close. Very close. Very close. Instead, a BAFTA award-winning score. Yes. Um, which brings us to our standbys. Ooh, these are going to be some long episodes, but we, we have some good outtakes out of this. Yeah. <laughs> so for some of these, um, Mike and Mel might have to go off of vibes, but um, it's going to be great. So, um, first of all, favorite line delivery. Um, if I'm being honest, my favorite line delivery came from earlier in this episode when Becca said, and that's not even to talk of the gnomes. <laughs> I meant in the, the movie. Yeah, no, I know what you meant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. My favorite line delivery. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let me see what I got here. I think I liked. Hmm. Okay, I think my favorite line delivery in the movie was uh, Fanny's exit of things to do, things to do. Uh, that one really <laughs> it tickled me. I liked that one. Fabulous choice. Uh, I think I think for me, um, 
and this is just going right off the top of my head because I did not prepare for this question at all. Uh, but I think it's going to be, it's going to have to go to my guy, David Morrissey, his line delivery when he's talking about Marianne's piano playing. And he's just very much like, you know, I, I noticed in the score it was supposed to be uh, whatever it was. Like, and you played it Allegro. Yeah. Uh, just, it's it's very, as a clumsy man who is not always good with his words, especially in the presence of pretty people, um, I sympathize with that. And I think David Morrissey played that very well. Aww. Aww. Uh, mine is going to be uh, very end of the episode. If I were still mistress of New Orleans, my girls would never be treated this way. Mm. Nice. Like, it's so sad. So sad. And mine is going to be, I think I'm going to give it to Dan Stevens, contrary to, to, well, actually, no, not contrary to anything. I think I'm going to give it to Dan Stevens saying, quiet country parish it is then. Very sexy. Yeah. Mm. I my runner up to this was a Dan Stevens line where he's like saying goodbye to her and he goes, your, your friendship. <laughs> that was I was also thinking about that when he was like, and your friendship has been very important to me, too. It's like uh, like he's swallowing. I love you with every ounce yeah. of his being. Oh, so good. All right. Uh, notable changes from the book. The biggest one is that Brandon and Willoughby. Like, even though I am I literally was just going on about how it could have been in the book, um, but getting to see Brandon and Willoughby's rivalry so openly is doing wonders for the plot. Yes. I'm going to give it to seeing what happens in Alanum. Hmm. Do we get this? Because, I mean... Give it a shot. I'll give it, I'll give it a shot. No, I, I'm, I'm just going to piggyback on, on what Molly said and, and just, like... Knowing up front, because I remember even like listening to you guys read the book, like, you know, Molly, you, you had never read it before, so you were not sure where it was going to go with Willoughby. Can you trust him? Can you not? Like, it seemed kind of up in the air. Whereas, like, this film is very much delivering, like, no, he is he is not to be trusted. You're supposed to like Colonel Brandon. You're not supposed to like this guy. This guy's a jerk to Colonel Brandon. Um, he he. They play up like the the like billionaire playboy aspect of him a little bit more. That's his son. What? Tony Stark. Yes. Uh, uh, that is a niche reference for Marvel fans. Uh, <laughs> um. All right. And Mel. Oh sure, sure. Yeah. This one's a movie. <laughs> yeah. This this one is a movie, and that one was on pages. Um. Well, I will say, Molly, when we first when it first started, the opening scene, Molly was like, "This one's sexy because it's 2008." I was like, "That leads me to believe that the book maybe wasn't as like explicit with that." And so uh, I was eyeing that throughout the film, and the fact that even like kissing uh, unattended is like sexy is very funny to me. <laughs> but I guess that's for the time period. So um, yeah, you know, all the all the sexy stuff, oh. notable difference, absolutely thrilling. That's actually a really good answer. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's what they say on Family Feud. But you haven't seen. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> good answer. Survey says. Okay. Mel likes game shows. Sure do. <laughs> okay. So next is uh, least favorite part of this section of the adaptation. Oh yeah. My immediate answer is um, is the hair cutting scene with Margaret. Just Margaret's face right after that happens. I'm just like I feel so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's it for me. It man, it, it seems so silly, but those horse carriage moments like with the dramatic music playing it's too much it's too <laughs> much. again you go from this very like soft lovely scene to just like 
it's like why are we suddenly in lord of the rings like what happened why are we being like why are we being chased all of a sudden yeah what uh it it's just an odd choice and that's uh that's what i'm gonna stick with that's a good choice um i am gonna go with mrs jennings and john middleton weirdly having cockney accents as if they are low class Mm -hmm. uh which is not the case they are very wealthy I am going to go with there are just a lot of creepy dolls. Mm-hmm. And I understand that's probably what playing dolls looked like back in this day, but I didn't like it in the opening sequence of Titanic, and I don't like it now. Good stuff. Um, all right, favorite part. I like that everyone in this movie is really hot. <laughs> Mike said something very similar about this movie. <laughs> Yeah. Except John Dashwood. <laughs> Except Honestly, John. even John Dashwood could get it. <laughs> Becca and Mike are making identical faces at me right now. Oh I mean, this is an audio medium, so you cannot see it, but just know, just know that we looked at Molly correctly for that statement. Um, <laughs> I think for me, it's probably Mrs. Dashwood's performance. I really like this Mrs. Dashwood. Mm. I think I really liked meeting. John Middleton, is he the Harry Potter guy? <laughs> I just loved his energy. It just felt so like different than everybody else's energy. And I just, I thought he was so cheerful. And I just liked that he was like, company, I love company. Come on over, let's have fun. Uh, I don't know. I think just meeting him was, was nice. Um, originally, I was going to refer back to my phone background and be like, David Morrissey, best part of the new one. But no, I think, um, no, but I, I, I actually think that um, Eleanor Dashwood, the the casting the the acting choices that she makes are just so they're very subtle but they bring such a richness to the character um and obviously this is not to compare to Emma Thompson who's phenomenal but having having an actress who one is close to the age of the actual character um and just like she's less of a familiar face at least to me, because I've never seen her in anything before. So you you kind of like feel a bit more sorry for her just because like you she's she's someone, you know, new. And we should note that um, for the most part, the people who star in this are actually quite unknown. Um, the, the people we have mentioned that are in other things are for the most part in those other things after filming this. So when this premiered, most of these actors were not really well known. Though I want to throw it out there that this movie was released the same year as Mamma Mia. So I just want to say that Dominic Cooper was filming this and Mamma Mia simultaneously. Perfect. I will say, yeah, Dominic Cooper was the 2008 Ariana DeBose. She's, <laughs> yeah. she's having her year now where she's just in everything. And I feel like that was uh, that was his year. Yeah. yeah. It's like Rachel McAdams in The Notebook and Mean Girls at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. All right. Who wins? I, I First of all, I do want to echo what Mike said. This Eleanor is fantastic and I think really a standout in the main cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But who wins? Queen Mab. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have an answer for this because I, I was going to say Dominic Cooper because he brings something very rich to Willoughby. And also, this is a much more central Willoughby than the most famous adaptation of this story. Um, so you see us getting a lot more time with him as a character than we have seen on screen before. I'll go next. Um, well, I if I can if I can change it from a who to a what wins, I have a, a immediate answer. To me, the winner of this is the Bagel Bangs. It doesn't, it didn't get better than me, better. It just, 
It was just the best thing ever. It was really good. Just Fanny's hair as a whole. And I, I guess Fanny wins, in my opinion, uh, because of that. Her energy and, and the hair was just incredible. Fanny's hair did have as many complexities and uh, different layers as uh, Willoughby's performance. So, yeah, I yeah. agree. Thank you, Becca. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Michael? No, I need a minute to think about who won. I know for sure who lost. Uh, the poor child that was cast as Fanny and John's son. <laughs> that poor child lost. That that poor child lost. We, we all lost on his Augustus. Too. That poor child lost more than he knew in that moment. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm going to so check much. up on him and make sure that he's doing okay. I'm sure he, he's fine. I, 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 I wouldn't bet money on it. But uh, as far as who won... I'm just gonna, you know, what? I'm just gonna say the whole cast. Honestly, like it's hard to pick someone from from this cast because we we've already mentioned the 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 actress who plays Eleanor, who did fantastic. I think David Morrissey is wonderful. Dominic Cooper, you know, did this, and then like you said, was in Mamma Mia that same year. Two years later, he's in Captain America. Like she's just like having a wonderful career. So like, and our boy Dan Stevens. I'll I'll even give it to Dan Stevens. The 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 hot sitcom older brother of this movie. Yes. Um, it's really just this whole cast feels more connected and just very put together, and it's very very nice to see. So on that note, I was gonna give it to Kate Rhodes James, who cast this movie. Thank yes. you. And Perfect. I do I do want to say everyone who created this movie had such big shoes to fill because the ninety five is one considered one of the most successful adaptations of a Jane Austen novel of all time, and people didn't think you should adapt Sense and Sensibility again. And these, the people who worked on this really like worked hard to make sure this was something on that could stand on its own and separate from the 95 and not be constantly compared to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Anyway, that concludes this extraordinarily long episode of Pot of Prejudice, <laughs> which I am looking at now and thinking maybe Molly's going to give a little voiceover halfway through and be like, so this is actually going to be a third episode. But uh in any event, uh, we're going to get to the second half of this mini series, and it's going to be fantastic. So get ready for that uh, in two weeks. Um, Mel and Mike, thank you so much for joining your really intense girlfriends who love Jane Austen <laughs> a lot. Um, we survived, Mike. Do you want to plug anything before we we go? Um, sure. So uh, if you if you want to follow me on social media, go nuts. Uh, my Instagram is at uh, melrubin2. I have a tiny dog who you may or may not have heard his tiny little licks throughout this episode. He's on Instagram as well, has way more followers than I do. So give him a follow at Milo the Miki, M-I-K-I. And if you want to follow along, uh, my uh, hip hop improv group is uh, North Coast. Uh, we're on social media at North Coast NYC. So uh, feel free to follow us as well. Yeah. yeah that's it. <laughs> thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for having me. This was really fun and scary. <laughs> <laughs> You did great. You did great. Thank you. Thank you. As for me, you can always hear my wonderful Mike's takes on this podcast. Um, that will continue, I am sure. You can follow me on Instagram, Mike Dowd Comedy, or you can follow. I have a podcast where I, similar to the structure of this podcast, my friend Janine has never watched Twin Peaks before. So I'm walking her through uh, the wonderful world of Twin Peaks. That's at Welcome to Twin Speaks. Uh, follow us on Instagram through that or I'm in another David Lynch inspired podcast it's a David Lynch inspired Seinfeld reboot basically it's an episode of Seinfeld where weird things happen and pop up uh, and I have the wonderful pleasure of playing Kramer 
You can follow at Sign Peaks. That's S E I N P E A K S uh, on Instagram and follow that podcast, The Other Side of Darkness. Molly, we have talented SOs. We really do. They're so cool. <laughs> yeah, they're cool. They're cool people. You guys should, uh, should check out their content. Until next time, though, stay proper. Does anyone want to take it away? I'm so bad at thinking of these. And find a significant other who will podcast with you. <laughs> yeah, do that. They're yeah. great. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.